Welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of Crosscut Now on KCTS 9, and your host for this podcast. In this episode, there are no holds barred. It's a provocative conversation with the 45th president's former personal lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen. Please note that this conversation, moderated by journalist Joni Balter, was recorded on May 6th for the Crosscut Ideas Festival. That was before a federal jury in Manhattan found that Donald Trump sexually abused E. Jean Carroll in 1996, awarding her $5 million for battery and defamation. Balter and Cohen discuss Carroll's civil case against Trump, along with other indictments and investigations Trump faces right now. Cohen uses that and other opportunities to make it clear what he now thinks of his former boss. Cohen is no longer an ardent Trump loyalist. After spending 13 months in prison for his hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and for lying to Congress about it, he says he takes responsibility for his actions. He also tells Balter that he might even have had a hand in making Donald Trump who he is, although he puts most of the blame on Trump's parents. Regardless, Cohen now explains why he believes that Trump is the single most dangerous thing to happen to American democracy. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and if you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Now let's get into it. Excellent job. Excellent. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crosscut Festival. My name is Joni Balter. I am a journalist and a professor at the University of Washington's Evans Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm also a professional in residence and lecturer at Seattle University. Today, we are going to talk about Trump, the truth, and consequences. It is my pleasure now to introduce Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former personal attorney, host of the Mea Culpa podcast, and New York Times bestselling author of Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the Department of Justice Against His Critics. His earlier book was called Disloyal. Hi there, Michael. Thanks for being here. Wonderful. Wonderful. So um, we are on the verge of something quite historic, uh, the first criminal trial of a former president. What is it like for you to be in the? <laughs> As I was saying, what is it like for you to be at, in the center of that? And briefly, how do you think that's going to play out? So I'm going to start with the second part of the question, because I continuously stated that Alvin Bragg's case was going to be the first. And I can't tell you the number of people that questioned the accuracy of that statement. Well, lo and behold, good for Alvin Bragg coming back um, and doing what is right. Now, one of the things that irks me terribly is when I start reading from journalists or I listen to these pundits on television who turn around and say, um, it's such a ticky-tack type of you know, a case. Why did he bring it? And it's funny how all of a sudden now we've decided that we're going to rank crimes, right? Oh, yeah, it's not like the January 6th insurrection. I grant you that. It's certainly much worse. Or the theft of you know, top secret information that he stored at Mar-a-Lardo, you know, in the, wherever the heck that he kept it down there, right? It's certainly much more significant than 
the hush money payment um, to a porn star. But all of a sudden, we're ranking that because if any one of you were involved in it, then you too would be arrested, and it would have been done in a much more expeditious manner. So I give Alvin Bragg a lot of credit. I was very critical of him for a long time, especially um, many of you may have seen that Mark Pomerantz put out you know, his book. But I had met not just with Mark Pomerantz 15 times, but while I was in Otisville prison, the district attorney's office came and visited me three times. And so this has been a long journey, but rest assured, um, it's legitimate, and I do believe that he will be held accountable. So what did you observe? This has been a really busy week in Trumpville. Um, what did you observe in his approach to the Carroll rape defamation um, trial that tells you, you know, gives you some hints how he will respond to, to the case that you're involved in and, and many of the other legal proceedings? A lot, of, a lot of stuff going on with it. Yeah, so anybody, of course, that's watching television has seen the wonderful deposition that was conducted of him approximately a year ago, where he, you know, he's shown a photo, and after stating that she's not his type, he points to her and he states, well, that's Marla, and that's Yvonne, and they're like, whoa, whoa, where's Marla? So he points to the photo, and it's obviously not Marla, it's E. Jean Carroll. And it just goes to show you how stupid he is. Uh, I mean, one of the things that we used to say all the time is the worst place to ever have Donald is at a deposition. First of all, he never tells the truth. And everything that he talks about is always circular. And so as a former litigator and someone who had done many, many depositions over the course of my life, I can tell you he's the exact type of a person that you want to sit across the table from you when you're trying to get your point across. You mean because he's going to make the mistakes? Is that what you're talking about? He's perfect for it. I mean, it's hard to imagine that he actually became the president of the United States. I mean, you watch and you listen to all of the nonsense that he talks about day in and day out. And it's truly amazing. I mean, I hate to say it, you know, because I am the one who pushed him into running. And I'm angry at myself. My family's angry. Many friends of mine are angry at me for doing it. But, but you imagined him at that point as president. I never thought he would become the worst version of himself imaginable. I actually thought that he would have elevated himself to the office of the presidency instead of debasing it. So um, in set up lines for um, different anecdotes in your two books, you engage in a fair amount of self-loathing. You say, oh, I was so obsessed. You say, yes, much of what I did was morally, legally, and ethically repulsive. How much responsibility do you bear, Michael Cohen, for making Trump the freakish character that he is today? A king is nothing without his subjects and subordinates, right? True, but it's not my DNA. The ones who really made him into the freakish character that he is is his father, Fred Trump, and Mary Trump, the mom. And yes, I take full responsibility for, and I did. I'm the only one who ended up going to prison for another man getting his pecker pulled by a porn star. I mean, everything else, as you'll read in Revenge, is pure nonsense. You know, the um, tax evasion never happened. Misrepresentation to a bank never happened. You'll read it uh, in Revenge. It is the most grotesque um, weaponization of the Justice Department against 
somebody that he deemed to be a critic. But I take full responsibility for the hush money payment, uh, for the misrepresentation, the lying to Congress, even though I like to always say, what was it that I lied about? What I lied about, because most people don't even know, what I lied about was the number of times that I spoke to Donald Trump about the failed Trump Tower Moscow real estate project. I stated to the Senate Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence that I spoke to Donald three times. Now, why did I say three? Because that's what he wanted. De minimis number, no Russia, no Russia, no Russia. You all remember that line, right? Almost like, uh, who's going to pay for the wall? So, you know, that was his thing. No, the true answer was that I spoke to him about it 10 times. And that's the, that's the charge, the 1001 violation that Donald and so many of the other Republican acolytes out there are trying to say is going to make me into an, a bad witness, uh, you know, attacking my credibility. Well, speaking of lying, as you said, you lied to Congress. And you know this question's coming, obviously. Um, you lied on behalf of Donald Trump a lot of times. So why should folks who came here today um, believe what you're telling me right now and telling them? So when you say a lot of times, name another lie. Name another lie, because you can't. What are you talking about? Did I, what, what did I, did I tell somebody that we were going to file a bankruptcy uh, in order to get them to settle a case? That Donald, what I did for Donald, remember, was for a real estate development company. And the lies had no effect upon anybody here. It had to do with their companies, this company, and so on. But the lie everybody refers to when they say that you lack credibility Again, is that 1001 violation that I was required to plead guilty to. It was part of the entire package, no different than I had to plead guilty to the campaign finance violation for Karen McDougal. I had nothing to do with Karen McDougal. That was David Pecker. David Pecker himself acknowledges, not only did I plead guilty to it, I was fined for it and was part of my incarceration period. This, again, is all covered in the book because it is the grossest weaponization against a U.S. citizen. But I think what I'm looking for here is some sort of change of heart as you, you know, you represented him, lies were told by you, and what has changed? What are you, why are, why are you being honest with these folks right now? Well, everything that I've said over the course of the past five years since I turned around and I had said to George Stephanopoulos in an ABC interview that my loyalty, my first loyalty, belongs to my wife, my daughter, my son, and my country. And there was no way I was going to allow Donald to ruin um, or to cast me as the villain of his story. And that's when I just decided I was going to speak freely and I was going to tell the truth on everything. Not that I had lied to them before. Again, it's really important people understand when on uh, television, they'll say, oh, well, you know, he's a convicted perjurer. Well, that's true. But what people have to understand, what they did to me on a Friday, August 18th, after four and a half months of reaching out to the um, Southern District of New York, who refused to meet with myself and my lawyer, they turned around and they said to him alone, 
Michael has to come in and plead guilty on Monday, or we're filing an 80-page indictment that's going to include his wife. And if you know my relationship with my wife, we're going on soon, you know, 29 years. Um, there was no way I was going to put her through any of this. They were going to take her out with me in handcuffs on Monday if I didn't agree to do what they told me to do. In essence, it was a hostage video. So is that uh, the moment? Was that your breaking point, your absolute, I can't do this anymore, this is my breaking point? It was because of your wife? Is that what you're saying? Breaking point is my family. He knew it. Uh, the Southern District of New, York, of New York knew it, and they took advantage of the situation. There was no way in the world I was going to risk my wife um, being put in handcuffs and marched um, out of our building. Weren't you also at that time pretty, pretty unhappy with Trump for not um, still paying uh, some of the legal fees at that time? Well, I, of course, because the stupid thing to do is to throw you away Right? I mean, if he likes to claim that he's like a mob boss, right? mob boss wouldn't do something like this. What they would do is they would bring you into the circle to ensure that you stayed on his message instead of cutting you loose. All that did is it increased the amount of pressure that was being placed on me. Don't forget, they took from me uh, a whole series of devices. And you may remember this also. They claimed that they took 17 electronic devices. Well, that happens to be true. Three of them were my daughter's old cell phones because, you know, the kids have to have the newest model. The other was my son's cell phones, my wife's. They even took a Palm Pilot from me. Most of you, you know, wouldn't even remember this. You had to have, put batteries in it where you flip the antenna up. They called and said, well, do you have a pass card? I said, that thing never even worked, right? As soon as you would turn it on, the thing would end up running out of juice for the battery, and then you'd have to do it all over again. So you actually never got a chance to use the phone. They took that as well. They took my wife's phones. There were over 10 million documents that were taken. Anybody see, like with uh, Paul Manafort, an overseas bank account? Never had an overseas bank account. Never had an overseas business, right? None of that, none of the things that you see in these traditional type of cases existed. They needed to get to Trump, and the way that they thought that they would do it was to come through me. So I can't believe um, how late we are in the number of years that we've been talking about Donald Trump and uh, so it make, makes me think a little bit about a Trump second term. So I want to ask you, uh, what would a Trump second term be like? And what I'm really wondering is what boundaries do you think that he would cross in a second term that he didn't cross already in the first term? I don't know, because I'm going to be in Spain or someplace else. <laughs> you know, I can tell you that. I'm already out there looking to get another passport. Um, you know, what will it look like? I hate to say this. Because Are you sure you're I right don't to say want, this? I, yeah. Um, if anybody has watched The Handmaid's Tale, it's going to be eerily similar. You're going to have a slew of individuals that will be like the commanders. And that's the group of people who are out there, these religious zealots that want to turn around and tell a woman what, what she can and cannot do with her body, that they want to sit there and attack individuals part of the LGBTQ plus or transgender communities. They want to control everybody's lives. That's what it's going to be like. When I talk about, for example, in the book, I talk about how Donald um, and what he had and his Department of Justice did to me. The first thing that they do 
is they take away your First Amendment constitutional rights. You'll remember when I was unconstitutionally remanded back to Otisville because I refused to waive my First Amendment constitutional right and not to publish the book Disloyal. They were standing behind me, marshals, Mr. Cohen, stand up and face the wall, handcuffed, shackled like if I was Hannibal Lecter. Over what? Over because I said, you can't limit my constitutional right to talk about it. You can't tell my family or friends. The book was already with the printers. What was I supposed to do? They told me to wait, boom. The first thing that you do in order to create an autocracy, you take away someone's First Amendment constitutional right. The second thing you do is you take over the military. Now, taking over the military, everyone's shaking their hand and said, it's not gonna be so easy, and I agree with you. So what do you do? You create a paramilitary group. And what's the paramilitary group? Take a look at January 6th, the insurrection. All of these lunatics running around with MAGA flags, baseball bats, paramilitary gear, Kevlar, some had guns, some had bear spray, zip ties. That's his army. And that's what you do. And what do you do? You attack the Capitol, you attack the government. I truly believe that Donald Trump is the single most significant issue right now in the potential destruction of our democracy ever. So I want to be a little personal here for a minute. Um, in your book, Disloyal, um, you, you describe what seems like a pivot point to me in your family. You're a teenager, 15, 16, uh, something like that. And your father uh, and your mother noticed that your, your personality is changing, as teenagers do. But anyway, your father calls you in, and he says to you, um, that you're becoming more like this uncle that you have. And he says to you, your father, cut it out, the whole mafia gangster thing. You are not one of them. You are gonna be a surgeon like me or a lawyer like your uncle Ralph. So yeah, you become uh, a lawyer, but you also follow your uncle Morty um, by spending a lot of time at this um, country club on Long Island called- In I Brooklyn. Think I, in Brooklyn, okay, El Carib. Um, so looking back at that moment, you know, in the book you do a, a sort of went, went, went in one ear and out the other, but when you look back at it now, what, what's your takeaway from that moment? And you, you thought it important enough to put in the book, so. Yeah, so the, the El Carib, actually they talk about it in the, uh, in the television show with um, Sylvester Stallone, uh, Tulsa, you know, where they make reference to it, it was a, Country Club, very much like um, uh, that movie, uh, was the Flamingo Kid, there were a lot of guys there that were part of organized crime, but the bosses of all the bosses. And so as a young man, I got a opportunity to meet many of them, and of course, year after year after year, they get to know you, uh, and you develop relationships with them. The one thing that I would say that I took away from the experience of being around all of these legitimate wise guys um, is that I was not breaking the law and their relationships to one another, the issue of loyalty, it really was it, it imprinted upon me because whatever that they were doing in their own worlds, they had such incredible loyalty to one another. There's that whole code of omerta, right, silence, where they said nothing. Uh, it's interesting, and I believe that that imprint on me is what kept me around Donald 
as loyal as I was because so an overdose of an overdose of it, right? it definitely I truly appreciated loyalty unfortunately with Donald as we like to say in the office he's very much like First Avenue in New York City it's one way <laughs> <laughs> I lived very near First Avenue Michael Cohen you went to jail as you mentioned Otisville little cushy uh, for prison. It's, it's a prison prison thank you uh, 13 and a half months you made the payment to Stormy Daniels, you took the bullet for your boss. Now, um, there are three investigations. I got screwed twice, huh? <laughs> and didn't get screwed. I'll just continue here if that's okay with you. <laughs> now, with three investigations, and this week, the defamation lawsuit. What does it feel like, and I know feel like it's kind of a TV question, so forgive me for that. What does it feel like to see Donald Trump suffering a few consequences? for years of misbehavior. And in that answer, I would love to hear if you sort of fear that he's somehow not gonna face any uh, significant consequences. Okay, so to me, it's all about accountability. It's something that Donald has successfully avoided his entire life, until Alvin Bragg, until the, our unsinkable New York Attorney General, that's a civil case though, um, and that's going to affect, as it already has, uh, the Trump Organization, which is his uh, pride and joy. He basically, you know, it's his ego. The Trump Organization, Donald, it's, you know, they're uh, symbiotic. It's a interesting thing. I don't want to see Donald Trump, and I've said this before, I don't want to see him indicted, prosecuted, convicted, imprisoned, simply because I fundamentally disagree with virtually everything that comes out of his mouth. Well, what, what do you want to see occur? Accountability. What, I want what does to, that look like? Well, what I want to see from, from him is if, in fact, a jury comes back and makes a determination that he is guilty of the charges that are being levied against him by the various different, whether it be Fannie Willis from Georgia, whether it be Jack Smith or whoever's going to prosecute that specific case, whether it be Alvin Bragg or any of the other cases, uh, E. Jean Carroll, I want to see him held accountable and responsible, not because it makes me feel better, but because any one of us would suffer the same consequence. And just to remind people, I did suffer the consequence. And so... Um, I think it's important that it show the American people that no one is above the law. <laughs> he likes that. Um, as Donald Trump's lawyer, what is it like to challenge an idea of his? In other words, do you brace yourself for kind of a big shouting match? Um, how often does ketchup fly? Yeah. <laughs> It's a rarity, um, and that's why you start to see so many of it's the lawyers. It's a rarity that you confront. Correct. Now, right. he would ask me my opinion on virtually everything, but you would already know in advance the answer that he wanted. So he would turn around and make this statement in such a way that you knew the answer he wanted. He would say to you something like, Joni, is this not the greatest water that you've ever had? Trump ice is the no, best No, I haven't water. even had any. I'm protecting myself. Quite, quite frankly, Trump, no, no, nothing's better than Trump ice, right? Oh. So what are you going to say to him? No? 
It's the worst, it tastes like plastic. You can't argue with that type of a question when it's presented. And in law, we call that a leading question. That's how, he, that's how he would respond. And if you disagreed with him, he would ask that same question to every single person, whether it's the doorman, whether it's you know, another lawyer at the company, whether it would be he's, Alan Weiss. Crowds, he's crowdsourcing the product. Until product. he finds the one person that agrees with his position, and then he'll tell you whether it's on television or something. What are you talking about? He goes, everybody agrees. No, 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 nobody agreed, only one person, and that person you know, didn't even try it, right? <laughs> so that's, that's the whole issue. So when you fight with him, it's an unfair fight because he doesn't fight fairly, and that's why so many lawyers have made the mistake. I mean, think about Christina Hobb, who signed a document stating that they returned all of the documents from that, you know, to the um, National Archives, right, to the, um, under the Presidential Records Act, instead, she signs it, now she's in trouble. Look at Rudy Colludi Giuliani with the whole oh, problem. Look at, look at all of the various different individuals who have now gone down, myself included, simply because you don't want to fight with him. It's an unfair fight. But you didn't mention ketchup, and I'm from Pittsburgh originally, and I, I care a lot about the ketchup. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I understand that. I know he never threw ketchup at me. So that was a one-time thing. Um, so. I want to talk a little bit about the lawsuit against you. There's um, a $500 million lawsuit for breaching confidentiality, spreading falsehoods. But I wonder when I saw this, how much of this is just Trump playbook, 101, sue, 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 offense, offense, offense. So how much is he just trying to sort of tie you up in a legal hell, the expense, all of that, than rather, than rather being serious about winning? Yeah, so this is a typical maneuver, as I have stated so many times during the eight interviews I did with members of Congress and law enforcement and so on. The whole goal is twofold. The first is to send a warning shot, not just to me, but to anyone else who's contemplating on cooperating with law enforcement against me. Do you want a $500 million lawsuit? You know what? Let somebody else do it. I don't want to be bothered. All right, so this is a warning shot. Um, do it, does it have any but validity? It, but it will tie you up. You, you have a GoFundMe uh, page so that you can raise the money to yep. combat and it. These tomorrow, are expensive, believe me. It's going to be, it'll be close to a seven-figure scenario because, again, it all goes right back to accountability. I refuse to just allow this case to disappear on its own. It's... It's baseless, it's meritless. Even people who dislike me, who are ultra-right-wingers, they will turn around and say that this is just a ridiculous lawsuit. It's baseless. He was just sanctioned in Palm Beach, he and Alina Haba, for a million dollars for filing um, baseless lawsuits. So what did he do? He did something called forum shopping. He went down to the Southern District in Florida, in Miami, to go find, he got a terrible choice in judge. I'm fortunate that we have a great judge who is gonna really um, hold Donald to account. But my papers go in tomorrow, so I'm sure that'll get picked up by the press. The whole goal of Donald is, as you said, to tie me up, but more important than that is to send a warning shot to anyone else who is foolish enough to try to side with law enforcement against it. It's obstruction of justice, uh, witness tampering. 
Is there anything, and you, you know him pretty well, that will stop Donald Trump from trying to be president again? You know, what would it take uh, to stop him if various investigations and lawsuits don't slow him down? Me. Want to elaborate? I will, con I will continue no, to. You're I will going continue. to stop him from, from running I will stop in 2024. As I, did, as I did before, I will, I will use my voice as much as I possibly can. I have not one, but actually two podcasts. Um, I have I millions the second of, one. Uh, it's called Political Beatdown. Ah. Um, it's on YouTube. I mean, we're doing incredible, incredible numbers. My goal is to ensure that people know the truth about him and that he is not the pro he is not fit to be president of the United States again. You gotta forgive me for a second. I don't think you alone can make this change. I will do my best to try, and I will try to bring on, as we do with, for example, political, I have several million followers. Um, my goal is to get each and every one of them to bring on additional two, three people until finally, until finally, where such a significant force that we will ensure that he does not become uh, the 47th president of the United States of America. So I don't have a lot of time here if I'm reading this clock properly, but I wanna ask you one last thing, and that is, before we get to the audience questions, which of the, you know, there's so many different investigations and court proceedings, which of them, from what you know, most riles him? Which is the one that just, just creates the fear that you've talked about also? You said he's finally afraid after the New York filing. So which one, and I'm just going on your gut or something you've seen or something you know? All of them. Because so it's the, it's the, the right. collection of all it's of them? The, it's all of them, and the reason why is it's Alvin Bragg's case, it's already in motion. Uh, he knows that the Fannie Willis uh, Georgia case is coming down the pike any day now, so he's waiting for that. He also knows that the Mar-a-Lago uh, document case is also coming down. January 6th is going to be a little more difficult because it's a uh, it's it's tricky. The the le the legal uh, aspects of it are quite tricky, uh, but he knows that all of this litigation that's surrounding him is interfering with his opportunity to lie to the American people so that he can become president again, and which, of course, he wants to do in order to avoid the responsibility of You're all of these You're saying he doesn't cases. want to be president. He's he didn't want to be president a... the first time. It was supposed well, to. When we started the case, uh, when we started the, yeah. the running, he always said this is supposed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of politics. So hold that thought, because I, it's time for me, I believe, to, to ask you an audience question, which works pretty well with that. Uh, what made you push Trump to run for office? You obviously despise him now, so what drew you to him originally? Some of that is in the books. Um, his, off, his awful behaviors, this questioner says, are not new. Right. So as it relates, for example, to E. Jean Carroll, that happened when I was first year out of law school. I was not involved. I had never heard of that case until it came about, which, you know, um, good for her for, you know, bringing it to the forefront. But I didn't expect, again, that Donald would become the worst version of himself imaginable. And if you start to look at basically politics, the swamp, I really thought that there were things that he could do that would be beneficial to the country. I thought as an outsider, 
that he could name be. One, name one thing. Infrastructure bill. We talked about that for two years. Mm -hmm. Two years, and instead, I'm sitting in the Oval Office with him. It was March of, 20, of, of 2017. And he said to me, so Michael, what did you think of this immigration bill? I said, that's not an immigration bill. That's a Muslim ban. And I, I think it's disgusting. And, I, and he blamed, of course, on Steve Bannon and Steve Miller. But at the end of the day, he wasn't supposed to start with that. You start with infrastructure, which, of course, is the builder. That would have been perfect for him. Makes sense. Uh, what's something about Donald Trump that we don't know? I kind of love this question. <laughs> I just kind of do. I have no idea. I mean, oh, I, give us I don't something. know. What is it, something? I, I, have, I have no idea. You said you were Trump's fixer. What exactly does that mean in Trump world, a fixer? So every day brought on new challenges. You know, people have certain skills. I have a particularly unique set of skills as it relates. I feel like Liam Neeson, right? I have a particular set of skills that are different. I combine law with, with um, PR, a crisis manager, uh, so to speak. There were always things that were upsetting to him, that irritated him, and my job was to bring them to fruition. Okay. Is Donald Trump stupid or extremely smart and strategic in his abilities to lie and dodge the troop and persuade the naive and maintain power? He's stupid, but he's stupid in a clever way, like a cult leader. I mean, he's no different than Jim Jones. They're drinking the, you know, the Kool-Aid, except Trump wouldn't even spring for Kool-Aid. He'd go for the cheap knockoff version because it doesn't matter, right, if there's profit for him. Um, it's said that 70 million people voted for him. How about this 26, 27% of these MAGAs that are supporting him to the tune of $17 million after an indictment? Seriously? Or they're supporting him after the allegations being made by E. Jean Carroll and others that have come forward um, about you know, his sexual assaulting um, of them. We've well, wait a minute, then how stupid is that? He's, he's got these supporters there. Doesn't make, it, doesn't make you smart, he's conniving. There's a big, there's a big difference, but how, why, and why I say that he's stupid, all you need to do is read a deposition that Donald Trump was involved in. He lies with such impunity that he can't remember the lie. You know the old expression, a lie begets a lie? Well, what if it's a lie begets a lie begets a lie begets a lie begets a lie and a lie and another lie? And then at the end of the day, he doesn't know whether he's coming or going, and everything is made up. And that's why he's so circular in his conversation and how easy it is as you know, the um, deposer right, to trip him up. What does your lawyer, and I had a question similar to this, not exactly. What does your lawyer think about you making appearances like this? Like, what advice did they give you? Don't say this. Um, I'm, I'm adding to it. <laughs> Don't say this in front of a, an audience that's recorded or a large audience. What do they think about you doing this? I know you're promoting your book. I got that. No, the, it's, it's not about promoting the book. It's about informing the public. Like I said before, how am I going to use my voice, my knowledge? I've already suffered the consequences. Right. My, my, my stuff is over. I did my time, door to door. I didn't get a second of any minute, of any hour, of any day, of any year off of my sentence. All right. I did but you were at a very cushy prison, Otisville. 
what was I, what was I charged with? Paying a porn star? Where should I have gone to sing? Well, I mean, I should have gone to Supermax? This is, this is where I was supposed to go, right? I mean, I went to a federal prison. Let me tell you, being away from my wife and my children was torture. And let me tell you, I've said this publicly, every single, uh, every single person who's in, whether you're in a cushy camp, cupcake is they like, but we never got cupcakes, by the way, all right? And but on you top did of get that, kosher food if you liked it. First of all, I didn't eat that because it's filled with MSG and all sorts of sodium that raised my blood pressure. But you're away from, the living conditions are horrific, all right? Um, you, you know, you're still away from your family. You told me in they the take green away room, your you law, They take away your... your law license, they took my business, they, they end up, you know, with all sorts of issues, banking relationships. You know, people are completely mistaken when they say, oh, well, you work for Donald Trump, you made your money with Donald Trump. That's not true, and if you read the book, you'll, you'll know it. I retired at 39. I didn't work for Donald because I needed the money. Other than Donald, I was the second richest guy in the office. I did incredibly well up to the age of 39, and then I stupidly accepted a job position. He owed me money for reviewing uh, a bunch of uh, Chapter 11 reorganization documents for Trump Entertainment Resorts. Okay. Instead, he offered me a job. He goes, why don't you come, why don't you work for me? You're going to only answer to me, made me executive vice president of the Trump Organization, special counsel to him. He goes, I love the way that you do things. He goes, you know, we're going to get along great. And we did for a decade. We did until he decided that let's throw Michael under the bus in order for me to escape, you know, um, my liability. And probably a big mistake on his part. Looking back, do you kick yourself for getting involved with Trump in the first place? I mean, you, you got some benefits out of it. What's the benefit? I went to prison. I understand I that part, license. and that's, that's right. I lost, I, I lost, I lost I, enough money that would make the devil vomit, all right? It's not true at all. What's the yeah, benefit? I got a chance to hang out with... Well, um, you said them yourself in your own book. The yes, benefits but, were the being close to power, meeting a lot of celebrities. I mean, these, these are things you wanted. Um, yes, except... That's true, except I had been friends with celebrities before even working for Donald. I represented people prior to Donald, um, substantially wealthier, but with real assets. Um, it's, yes, I did meet a lot of incredibly interesting people as a direct result. I was on the board, he made me on the, uh, put me on the board immediately from his universe organization. That was a lot of fun, uh, you know, a lot. Uh, then You're on making top, my point here. Right. I, <laughs> yes, I don't deny that I met a lot of people as a direct result, but I absolutely, not only do I kick myself every single day for accepting the job when my wife, my daughter, my son begged me not to, and throughout the tenure, are they Are they all still mad at you? Well, or? They're, they're not mad at me. They're saddened by this experience. This has really hurt my, my family. Uh, it's hurt me, but I don't care much about myself. I care about my wife and my children. And this has really hurt them terribly. Um, they never walked away from me because they knew that of the charges against me, they knew that um, six out of the eight were complete lies. And I will continue to hold everyone accountable, hence my lawsuit against the United States government, Bill Barr, and Donald Trump for the unconstitutional remand. Uh, I bring up the Southern District of New York 
that use their power. Who, who has a case like this resolved in 48 hours from a Friday to a Monday after they take all your documents, there's nobody to speak to. What do you do? Do I allow my wife to be dragged out of our building handcuffed? I hope nobody here would allow their significant other to go through it, but knowing my love for my wife and my children, there was not a chance in the world. So I said, fine, no problem. Tell me what you want me to say. And the Southern District of New York wrote the allocution. In fact, Jeffrey Berman, he's a fool, who's the former head of the Southern District of New York, this dope puts it in his book. He puts it in his book that he was being pressured by Maine Justice. So where are the investigations? I have a question about Trump's family. You're talking about your family. Is his family as loyal to him as they appear in the media? Um, We've all heard that, you know, Ivanka is not going to be active in the 2024 campaign. Um, Why should she? She pulled down $640 million over the four years that they were working, right, as senior advisors. Jared pulled down two-plus billion from the Saudis. Yeah, sure. That's exactly what she wants to do. She wants to end up giving all that money back and going to work you know, back inside the White House. They don't need to at this point. Do you think um, that it's sort of too late uh, for America to recover from these years, these events that have happened in our politics? Well, we're hanging uh, by a shoestring, as they say. Our democracy is in peril. And as I said before, Donald is the single most dangerous situation ever to happen to this country's democracy. He's exactly what our forefathers were afraid of, that there would be a president who would want to be more than just a president, would want to be an autocrat. And that's why, of course, they had the establishment of the tripartite system. Well, that only works if you respect the tripartite system, you respect the Constitution. The problem is Donald can't even spell it. What are the weaknesses in the way Donald Trump operates that should be targeted to successfully counter him, assuming he's the nominee or just even even going into the primaries. What are what are what are the opponents missing? What do they not know how to counter him? So look, here's another misconception: is okay. that I'm a Republican. I've been a Democrat my whole life. All right. Um, almost my entire life, my adult life. Uh, I started working in 87, 88 for Congressman Joe Moakley of Massachusetts. That's how far back. Um, Democrats are terrible at messaging, whereas the Republicans are great at it. And how many times that I have reached out to the DNC, uh, even whether it's through the Lincoln well, Project, through Justice Matters. Have you I've, talked to those folks? Of course I have. I, and I speak to, uh, you know, I've reached out to them a, Dozens and dozens of times. You're missing the point here. It's all about the messaging. It's something that, listen, I could say uh, all the things about Donald. He has never read a book in his life. He's great at messaging. That is his superpower. Is it true that he's never read a book in his he's life? He's never read a book in his life, oh, wow. um, in, including his own Art of the Deal. Um, but <laughs> He probably read that one. No, he didn't. He, it, was, it, was, it was written by okay. somebody else. But uh, putting all that aside, the his superpower 
is branding and messaging. I mean, how many people you know, remember all of the names, right? Lion Ted, and yet he still is a big fan. Crooked Hillary, right? Low Energy Jeff. He makes these monikers that stick. His branding is fantastic because he, pl he preys on people's fears. He's a popularist, and he knows how, he knows how to prey on, you know, on people's fears, their inhibitions, and so on, better than just about anyone uh, that's out there. You need to attack that. You need to have a staff ready to go with commercials that counter. Like, for example, why are they already not using the deposition that we've all seen on television over and over and over again? And talk about, is this really what you want for a president? Where's, where's that commercial? Just, and come up with a good bumper it's, sticker. It's on commercial and cable television, isn't it? That's not a DNC ad. But it's shown over and over again, so. Um, can you speak, and we really don't have much time here, so you gotta go tight. Can you speak to Trump's finances? Is he a billionaire? Is he broke? It's, it's all in different accounts, I understand. So currently, he's not broke. Uh, is he a billionaire? Yes. Is he worth $10 billion? No, never was. Was he worth eight? No. Five? No. Three? No. Is he somewhere between one in the mid twos uh, based upon assets? Probably yes. I don't fully know what the extent of his um, obligations are uh, or what's going to happen with the uh, New York AG's case, but that's going to end up being the death spiral to the Trump organization. So um, we are officially out of time, Michael Cohen. I want to thank you so much uh, for joining me today. And I want to thank, thank you. to all of you here at the Cost Festival. It's been such a fun interview. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode. Thanks to Joni and Michael for the talk. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Seth Halloran and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Anne O'Dowd. Madeline Happold managed our audience engagement. And you can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. We want to know what you think. For the latest political, environmental, and cultural news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Paris Jackson. We'll be back soon with another conversation.